If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to wrap up Romans chapter 8 today. So we'll begin reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please be seated. We started Romans 8 a few weeks ago with that beautiful promise at the beginning of the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul starts this, this chapter with there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Son of God put on flesh, he lived a perfect life, he died a sinner's death, and he rose again. Christ so completely fit, fulfilled the law, he so completely and fully took, took on the cup of God's wrath. And he so completely saves those who the Father has given them that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. It's easy to take this idea for granted. We take the utter finality of the completeness of Christ's work and turn it into a possibility. In an old debate that Casey and I watched recently on Romans chapter 9, James White posed a question to his opponent. He asked, did, men, did Christ die to make men savable? Meaning, did Christ die to make it only a possibility that men could be saved? Or, did Christ, through his atoning death and resurrection, actually save men? So did, his, did Christ work fully and completely save those that the Father chose in Christ before the foundation of the world? We have to decide which one it is because they're two very different things. One, God gives us a possibility to be saved. Two, 
Christ's atoning work actually saves. So next week, we're going to get into the all-important theology found in Romans 9. We're going to talk about God's righteous and sovereign decree. We're going to talk about foreknowledge, predestination, election, the calling of God's people. But Romans chapter 8 is so critical to properly interpret Romans chapter 9. Paul didn't start this chapter with telling his readers that there's a possibility that you may not have condemnation. He starts with a definitive truth claim. It's not a possibility. He's stating plainly there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. If we jump ahead a little bit, in verse 12 of Romans 8, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So those that are in Christ have the Holy Spirit, and those that have the Holy Spirit are adopted sons, and if we're sons, we're heirs, and if we're heirs, we're heirs with Christ. Again, this is not a possibility, it's a promise that those who are in Christ are adopted sons of God. Last week, Casey walked us through the promises found in verses 28 through 30, where it reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. As Casey unpacked, there's so much truth in just those three short verses. And we find powerful assurance of our salvation there. We see a picture of God's character there. We have a God that works. Not only does he work, but he works for the good of his people. And that good can be found in all things for his people. And as Casey so very clearly taught, those people are the ones that he calls. Those people aren't possibilities. They are the ones that Christ died for. Secondly, we see God's sovereignty on display. As Casey pointed out last week, talking about foreknowledge, we're not talking about God looking down the corridors of time, looking at the possibility that we'll say yes. We see an active display of God's free and sovereign choice. We see his predestination, his effectual and irresistible calling. Those he calls, he justifies, and those he justifies, he will also glorify. Note, nothing in those verses from last week says, those he calls might answer, and he might justify them, and he might also glorify them. No, those he calls, he justifies, those he justifies, he will also glorify. What Paul has been describing here is an absolute 
not some possibility that somehow is dependent on us. It's a description of the work that has already been done. Why can we have assurance and salvation? It's because Christ Jesus has already completed the work of salvation. The purchase for our salvation has already been made. The price for our sin has already been paid. So we find ourselves at the tail end of chapter 8, right back where we started, not in the exact words, but right back where we started. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul uses a, a very familiar formula, if you've been listening to Romans or reading Romans, by asking questions. And he starts with, what then shall we say to these things? To what things? Those last three verses from last week. What then do we have to say about it? What's our response to the idea that there is no condemnation? What is our response to being adopted as sons of God and heirs with Christ? What's our response to suffering and to future glory? What's our response to this golden chain of salvation that we see that removes any doubt as to who is responsible for our salvation? And I don't want us to be mistaken. Church family, these truths require a response. Paul responds in this way by asking five more questions. You know, they say don't, don't answer a question with a question, but I think you get away with it if you're Paul. So he proposes five logical questions based on his teaching so far. Not just in Romans 8, but so far in all of Romans. So he starts off with, if God is for us, who can be against us? This may seem like a very simple question. It may even seem like a rhetorical question. In some of the reading that I've been doing, I've, I've seen a lot of people call it a bit of a naive question. But it's not. Because we can't miss the meaning of why Paul's asking this question. Because it's so critical. First and foremost, we have to look at the beginning of that question. It says, if. Paul is not stating the possibility to say, well, if God is for you, then this. The proper way to look at this in the original language actually better translates to because. This if is a thing that is already done. So, because God is for us, who could be against us? This is a condition that's already fulfilled in the work of Christ. It's a statement of fact from Paul that those that are in Christ, God is for us. We can hang our hat of assurance on just this question, but he gives us so much more. Because, not if, because God is for us, who could possibly stand against us? Who could condemn us? Who could possibly rob us of our salvation? I'll tell you, one of the most frightening things you will ever hear God say to man, and you can see it all over the Old Testament, is the times that he says, I am against you. Look at Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and Tyre and Sidon and Eden. Even Israel at times heard, for a season, I am against you. This was especially true when Israel had false teachers, false shepherds, and false prophets in its midst. How terrible would it be to hear from the creator of the universe, I am against you. 
it's terrible because of who's saying it. It's not so terrible if I say, hey, church family, I'm against you. You're just going to look at me and go, oh, whatever. This is the creator of the universe saying, I'm against you. The creator of the universe, by whom and through whom all things were made. Turn with me real quick, and I hope you'll bear with me because I'm going to read a whole chapter here. Turn with me to Job chapter 38. To me, this is... And really, we could go on for multiple chapters, but I'll just do 38. This is such a picture. This is God in his own words describing who he is. So Job 38, we're going to read the whole chapter, so buckle up. So beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? and prescribed limits for it, and set, and set bars and doors, and said, thus, shall, uh, thus far shall you come, and no further. And here shall you, your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under a seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take Take it to its territory, and that you may discern the path to its home. You, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who, was, who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters came hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pallades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds, of wis uh, number the clouds by wisdom? 
or who can lift the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about lack of food? We have in this chapter, and it actually keeps going, God describing who he is. God saying, who are you, O man, to question me in, in, the, in the story of Job? Just as terrible as it, would hear, as it would be to hear this God in Job say, I'm against you. Look at how beautiful it is to hear what Paul's saying here, that for those that are in Christ, God is for you. This same God that describes himself in, the, in this way in Job says, I am for you if you are in Christ. David in Psalm 27 writes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life and whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire on his temple. The psalmist in Psalm 46 writes, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, he, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. If you skip ahead a few verses, as be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we go back to that first question. And why is it so very important? If the Lord is for us, who can be against us? Paul moves on to the second question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because God is for us, no one can stand against us. So how could we possibly be worried about whether or not God will give us all good things? Because he's already given us his son. The 19th century author Octavius Winslow correctly wrote about this verse, saying, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. It wasn't Pilate for fear. It was not the Jews for envy, but it was the Father for love. The prophet Isaiah wrote, wrote what the Lord told him to, but in Isaiah 53, he said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, speaking of Jesus. Yet we, are, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had, none, he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Father, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is there in all of creation that God could give us that is greater than what he's already given us in Christ? So why do we doubt so often that God will lavish us with all good things. And I don't want us to get confused here. The good things that Paul is talking about are not the good things that the world values. We're not talking about getting rich. We're not talking about having your best life now. We are talking about the good things from God. Paul wrote in more detail in Ephesians chapter 1, saying, Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. If we go forward just a little bit, in him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the glory of his, to the praise of his glory. Why would we possibly doubt? This isn't a rhetorical question from Paul. It is a beautiful statement of, of assurance. If, if God gave us what was so dear to him, greater than anything we could possibly have in creation, why do we worry about what we'll have in this creation? Paul continues in verse 33 of our text with his next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Paul here is almost assuredly echoing the words of the prophet Isaiah, found in uh, Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. Where it says, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In our lives, there will be many, many people that attempt to bring a charge against God's people. There are many that will attempt to heap some type of condemnation on us. The world tells us all the time that we're guilty because we're believers. If we don't somehow conform to the desires of the flesh, there's condemnation for us. If we don't conform to the ideas that just actually spit in the face of God's natural order, we're somehow condemned. If we don't tolerate the things of this world that God calls an abomination, we're somehow bigots. 
But it's not just the world. Satan, just as he did in the garden, works tirelessly to sow doubt on God's people. Our own flesh and minds at times sows doubt. But as Paul states here, there's only one who justifies. There's only one that has the authority to declare what's right from wrong, and there's only one who can declare his people eternally guiltless. John MacArthur put it this way in his commentary. God conceived the law. God revealed the law. God interprets the law. God applies the law. And it's through the sacrifice of his son that all the demands of the law have been met for those who trust him. There is no one to bring a charge against God's elect. This leads to Paul's fourth question in verse 34. If there's no one to charge you, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If there's no one to bring a charge against us, then who is going to condemn us? As we saw in the last verse, the same answer applies. There's only one. So when we enter seasons of doubt, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe what Scripture clearly teaches, what it plainly teaches? Christ has died as an atonement for our sin. Who can bring a charge? Who can condemn us if Christ has died as an atonement for sin? And that atonement is limited. It is for those whom the Father called before the foundation of the world. It is for those whom the Father has given to his Son. It's Christ that raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. And if that's not enough, it is Christ, the Son of God, who paid for our sin, who intercedes for those who the Father gave him. Paul paints this picture of, of condemnation and bringing charges and, uh, and, and judging. Uh, he, he paints the picture of a court. If, if God is the judge and Jesus is our, is our defense attorney, this is what Paul's saying. Who is there that can bring a charge? Who is there to condemn? Again, I want to go back to that question from the very beginning. Did Christ's atonement only make it a possibility for people to be saved? Did Christ want to save people that he was unable to save? No. Christ completely and fully saved those who, die, who Christ died for. And we can look at Jesus' own words. In John chapter 10, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I read that again because this doesn't look like a possibility. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he was offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So who is there to condemn us if Christ is our eternal high priest and the guarantor of God's promises? Paul goes on in verse 35 with his final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If the previous four questions are true, who can possibly separate us from the love of God? And it's interesting that Paul follows up this question with these lists of life circumstances, the distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. It's especially interesting because it's Paul saying this. So probably one to two years before Paul writes this, he wrote 2 Corinthians and in that, he gave a fairly explicit list of the ways he suffered to that point. It says, I am, I am the better one, to Paul talking about servants bragging. I am, I, I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with the rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Shipwreck a day and a night, I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Jesus wrote in the book of, well, he didn't write. Jesus was quoted in the book of John saying, if the world hates you, I know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on, my, on the account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
Church family, we will experience suffering. I hope we've made that clear as we've been going through Romans. I hope we continue to make it clear. We will experience suffering in this life. That's another one that is not a possibility. It's a reality. The world will persecute us. The world will hate us. The world will seek to outlaw our worship. All you have to do is look outside of this country, and our brothers and sisters around the world are already experiencing imprisonment and death sentences for their faith. But what a joy it is to look back at Paul's question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No amount of suffering in this world can change God's eternal decree of salvation for those who are in Christ. And Paul, Paul quotes from Psalm 42, 22, saying, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's a purpose in our suffering. And it may not be a pretty thing to think about. And if you're going through suffering, it may be something that makes you angry. Our suffering is for the sake of Christ. It's for the glory of the Father. As Paul puts it, in Christ we're more than conquerors. Not saying that we'll just conquer that suffering or we won't have to suffer at all. We are more than conquerors because of our suffering for Christ. In 2 Corinthians he wrote, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For those in Christ, our suffering is preparing us for what Paul calls an eternal weight of glory. Not an eternity of glory, which would also be a true statement, but is preparing us to experience the weight of that glory, just how glorious that glory is. Paul concludes chapter 8 saying, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you go back and say, oh, that's a pretty big list. But let, let's look at it. There, there's 10 items on this list that will not separate us from the love of God. He starts with life and death. The sufferings that we will have in life, the persecution that we could experience, the unemployment, the times of depression or anxiety, the times of sickness, the time of lost loved ones, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. Nor the fear or pain of death. Sometimes some of my most... hurt times in my life or when loved ones die. And you'll get, you'll get a, a pretty standard answer when that happens. And it's a true one, but it's a hard one to understand while you're going through this suffering. Death doesn't separate us from the love of God. In all actuality, believers will find the complete fullness of God's love at death. We have no need to fear death as believers. 
because there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Paul goes on and talks about angels and rulers. Things like good or evil or angels or demons or presidents or governors or governments, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. He talks about things in the present and things in the past. Believers, your past can't separate you from the love of God, nor can your future. nor powers, nor height, or depth. No force in this universe will separate you from the love of God. No type of signs or prophecies will separate you from the love of God. No type of magic or sorcery or whatever you want to call the mystical things out there can separate you from the love of God the burning out of the sun, a falling of a star, the destruction of the planet. Take this as far as you want to go. And that's why Paul says no powers, nor height or depth or anything in between can separate you from the love of God. And if that's not enough, Paul ends it with nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. In In the coming weeks, maybe more for Romans 9. Uh, Paul is going to go into a great amount of detail into why these questions, why these statements, why we can hold to them. And this is going to go on through Romans 9, 10, and 11. But we've already had a preview here. Why is there nothing that can separate believers from the love of, and promises of God? Because his love and promises don't depend on us. Amen. If they depended on us, we would lose it every time. God's love and promises aren't some possibilities that might come about if we do X, Y, or Z. I want to point back to Casey's text last week, Romans 8, 28 through 30. I would encourage you to memorize this. And we know that for all For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you have a doubt about your salvation, as we all do at times... Remember this, if you hit suffering and you have to ask that question of, does God really love me while I'm going through this terrible trial, go back to Romans 8, 28 through 30. So for those that are in Christ, for believers, there is so much comfort in Romans 8. There's so much comfort in these last few verses of text here. But there's a reason for it. It's because God chose who he's going to love. God chose who he's going to give his grace to. God chose who he's going to be merciful to. And that choice has nothing to do with us. He didn't choose us because we're good enough. Because if that was the case, no one would be chosen. He chose us in spite of our sinfulness and our wickedness, knowing 
the wicked people that we would be before the foundation of the world. But in his grace and mercy, he chose to save some. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God will finish the work he started in you. How can you know that? Because it's not your work. It is holy and completely God's work. Therefore, he will finish what he starts. I would urge you today, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, I, I want to tell you a few facts. Me and Casey can't save you. There's nothing we can do to save you. The musicians that you've seen up here are deacons. They can't save you. Children, I want you to listen very closely to me, especially my children. Your parents can't save you. And that is a beautiful, good thing. Because salvation is a work of God and God alone. So if you're sitting here today and you say, I, 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 know, I, I know I've not repented of my sins. I know I've not uh, placed my trust in Christ for salvation. Cry out to God for salvation. And this is the beautiful thing that we're going to continue to see in Romans. Cry out to God to salvation. If you have faith, it's because God gives you faith. If you believe, it's because God gave you belief. If you repented from your sin, it's because God has convicted you of your sin. If these things have happened, Scripture says you are saved. So Casey and I would love to chat with anyone that has questions about salvation uh, grab us after the service, call us during the week, talk to someone you've seen on stage today. But we can have this assurance. We can have this beautiful knowledge that God's love will never leave us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that your gift of grace and mercy to your people is not dependent on us because we could never be good enough to earn it. We could never do anything to deserve it. We're not owed anything. Yet in your wisdom and your grace as a reflection of your glory, you choose to save Lord, I pray for those that are here today that maybe you're unsure of their salvation or maybe know they're not saved, Lord. I pray that you would work in their hearts in a mighty way, Lord, that, 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 you, would, that you would bless them, Lord, for, for those that are believers but maybe you're going through a, tar, a hard time, Lord. I, I pray that you would just remind them of your love, remind them of these truths, that there's no one to raise charges against believers. There's no one that can condemn us because your word says for those in Christ there is now no condemnation. Lord, I ask you, you bless this final time of, of worship and song and, and our, our time of recognizing the ordinance of the Lord's table. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.